Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia here with um, my co-host, Tina Pippin, and it is a true honor today to welcome to the podcast a colleague who, I'm just going to gush from the outset, is among the most sensitive, um, lyrical, generous minds I've encountered in this work of teaching and learning and community building. Dina Omar is a writer, artist, teacher, anthropologist, we could go on. Um, she studies the politics of mental health in areas of extreme surveillance, and um, most notably, I think right now, is um, part of this is her dissertation project on how Arab young people are psychologized as part of and as an effect of conditions of surveillance that they endure. What I want to underline most, though, is Dina's orientation towards this ethnography, as well as towards the work of teaching and learning, and how it comes into being through her rootedness in community praxis of social transformation and social justice. Um, so Dina is one of the founding members of Students for Justice in Palestine, of the national network of Students for Justice in Palestine, and she also spent several years as a writer, teacher, and poet with June Jordan's Poetry for the People project in the Bay Area. Area. Um, more recently, she was one of the one of the um, co-organizers of the Palestine and Praxis um, statement that was circulated and signed by scholars in the wake of May's um, Israeli military attack on the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem. The statement, which we'll post on our website and on our social media, actually we've already posted it, but we'll do it again, um, affirms the Palestinian struggle as an indigenous liberation movement confronting a settler colonial state. Um, it was reading that statement that made us really want to bring Dina on the podcast and we were kind of kicking ourselves that we hadn't thought of it before. Um, but we've been wanting to do a Palestine solidarity um, set of episodes for a while. So this was the perfect time. Anyway, finally, on a more personal note, I'll just say I first met Dina when we both wound up in a gender and sexuality studies pro seminar at Yale. Um, I think I was a first year and Dina was a second year. There were only five people in this class. And I think that probably for all five of us, um, the class became a kind of oasis for the less than nurturing to say the least kinds of experiences that we were having as emerging scholars and teachers and thinkers at Yale. And um, although kind of Dina and I were in our sort of own separate paths um, for our years after that at Yale, connecting with her and with the others in that group during that time um, was just such an indication to me of the kinds of community spaces that she is able to build um, in all sorts of settings, including the really unlikely one in the ivory tower of this billionaire institution where we were kind of under duress together. Um, anyway, I'm going to stop. Um, I'm really happy to welcome you, Dina, to the podcast. Thank you for being here. And Thank you for having me. Appreciate think, it. Yeah, Tina is going to ask the first question. Yes, thank you, Dina, for being with us on Nothing Never Happens. Um, the first question is about the National Students for Justice in Palestine group. And mm -hmm. could you tell us about your involvement in it? Um, you know, how you came to be in that role, how you got involved in it, how the organization has come together at this point? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, talk to us about uh, NSJP. Yeah, so... Um just first off, I want to say that I really very much appreciate the invitation um, and the opportunity to be in conversation with both of you. Uh, as Lucia said, her and I met in um, 
a seminar with Jafari Allen, um, who definitely set the tone for the uh, discussion. And she was telling me that, uh, Tina, you are her mentor or were her mentor uh, as an undergrad. And I think when I, when I'm thinking about like my organizing work or how NSJP uh, kind of willed itself into fruition, it seemed like this huge kind of massive um, endeavor that just kind of happened. Um, it kind of moved through a lot of different people, but I think it's definitely um, like a, a large aspect of it was um, just based, like based in relationships of trust, very similar to like, for example, I don't typically um, accept invitations to uh, speak on Palestine, mostly because there is so much sort of intimidation and repression and so on and so forth. And that's why uh, when Lucia asked, um, it felt like a very, it, it felt like, I don't necessarily think that there are safe spaces, but it felt like a safer space um, and, and like an opportunity to engage with somebody seriously um, that I trust. And so if I were to say, so I guess my answer to that question is, I think NSJP was very much um, a product of building in a very similar way, um, connecting with people in ways that are sort of or organic or that you happen to know in your life, building relationships of trust and finding out who um, you align with in terms of you know values and um, I guess also who's who's also being gaslit in the same way as you are, um, and then there's like a um, a kind of natural alliance that happens. So I would say the idea for NSJP really started to um, uh, generate or, or become really popular um, when I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley. Um, it was actually quite astounding. I didn't start my undergrad thinking that I wanted to be a Palestinian activist. I thought I wanted to go into law or something, um, but I was really taken aback and quite surprised um, about how um, disconnected the language and the representation of Palestine um, and, and like news coverage of Palestine, not just news, because you kind of like um, anticipate the news coverage being skewed or biased or so on and so forth. Um, but also like in the academy, the extent to which um, Palestinian narratives and Palestinian perspectives were systematically erased or discredited or um, under siege. Um, and also around that time, there was, uh, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Irvine 11 case. Um, in, at UC Irvine, there were um, 11 students who were arrested for disrupting um, Israeli ambassador that came to speak at the university. Um, there were also a bunch of cases um, where um, uh, the Department of Education was investigating various university campuses uh, for uh, supposed or alleged um, you know, uh, cultivating atmospheres of anti-Semitism and so on and so forth. And you saw a lot of um, student organizers who were either Students for Justice in Palestine, but also Muslim Students Association and other sort of student organizations um, really being targeted in a very um, scary way. Um, and so just to give you a kind of example, 
for one of these Title VI investigation cases, they um, cited uh, Students for Justice in Palestine at UC Berkeley, which is a local chapter, um, along with the Muslim Students Association, along with a bunch of other sort of organizations. And they kind of um, made this crazy um, connection between those students and uh, terrorist organizations in um, the Middle East saying that we were connected to Hamas and to Hezbollah and all of these things. And A, not only are these things completely fabricated lies, um, but they had like devastating uh, effects on people's, you know, lives, their futures, their perceptions of themselves. Um, you know, I just remember, for example, one close friend who was cited in the Title VI investigation case. Um, you know, if you ever talk to him, you'll, you know, it, it becomes very clear that he's like a staunch atheist, very anti-religion, very um, interesting to talk to, right? Um, but then in the Title VI investigation case, it, it cites him as being a Muslim extremist who has ties to Muslim extremist organizations in the Middle East. So I guess, so that's a kind of like personal or idiosyncratic explanation, but that's just one example of when I, when I started and when I thought about, uh, when we started thinking about establishing NSJP, but take that and multiply it by who knows how much. Um, and it gives you a kind of understanding as to the reason why NSJP was needed. Um, so, uh, yeah, in terms of my involvement with National Students for Justice in Palestine, um, I thought when we started it, it was going to be a kind of small endeavor, kind of small grassroots, um, student-based organizing thing. Um, and the, the interest was massive. Um, the interest is still massive. People are incredibly interested. And I think there, it's like one of these things where it's like um, uh, the silent majority. You know, you just have so much interest, so many people like reaching out and wanting to help, but you you just didn't have the sort of infrastructure or the um, uh, organizational sort of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, direction. Um, and I think in that sense, NSJP kind of filled a void uh, when it came to responding to um, just the, the way in which the extent of the gaslighting and the extent of the um, yeah, confusion about you know, representing Palestinians in a way that's, uh, I think, uh, authentic, not authentic, but uh, does justice to their experience. And the other thing I was gonna say about all of this too is around that time when I was at UC Berkeley, a lot of like, what was in vogue or trendy uh, was reading uh, historiographies from um, the new historians in Israel. This is like in quotes, the new historians. And so at UC Berkeley, the first class I took about Palestine was with this uh, historian named Tom, uh, uh, Tom Segev. Um, and this is a kind of uh, paradigm uh, or historical paradigm, which very much focuses on uh, Israeli, um, um, the Israeli perspective of having to, like, like the distress of having to colonize um, 
this land, the kind of like axiom of shoot first, uh, cry later. Um, and it's, it's just, it's A, representationally and epistemically incredibly violent to be in that kind of position. Like just imagine being a Palestinian student uh, in a class on Israel and Palestine, listening to an Israeli historian talk about how difficult it was for Israelis to sort of colonize the, uh, colonize Palestine. And so that was like the beginning of UC, my UC Berkeley experience. And then my, the end of my UC Berkeley experience was um, the 2008-2009 um, uh, incursion or uh, massacre of Gaza. Um, and I just remember, and I think a lot of people were in the same position, just being completely like taken aback by uh, the fact that, you know, thousands of people could be killed within the matter of weeks but then you can't even say the word Palestine or Palestinians in the public sphere. Um, and I think that that uh, concern or that um, red flag was really what brought students together under the same sort of, um, uh, or, or, or like orienting people in the same sort of direction when it came to um, Israel and Palestine. One of the things I have another question for you, but like when it since this is a conversation, I'll just like one of the things I was thinking about is like this historical moment. Um, and this is partly what I think, I mean, Tina, you were there when I was kind of going through this and experience learning these critiques in college. Um, but that kind of historical moment was a sort of new wave of um interfaith organizing on college campuses, which was often sort of talk, talking in this sort of like liberal, neoliberal, multicultural language of religious conflict. And like, why can't Jews and Muslims and Christians get along? And a, one of the main organizations um, that was kind of pushing interfaith chapters on college campuses and frankly, and continues to is the Interfaith Youth Corps, which was getting money from Zionist organizations and kind of getting, creating these college chapters to depoliticize, um, depoliticize politically defang. And I think, you know, in the language, I think that Dina, you just used and have used in other contexts that is often used when we talk about Palestine, put under erasure the Palestinian struggle and make it this sort of like abstracted out, like this is a difference in religious belief and why can't extremists stop like politicizing their religions. And so I think like for me, as I'm listening to you talk about the context for founding in SJP, like one, the kind of interfaithy stuff seems like part of that gaslighting and narrativizing of like, oh, is, isn't it hard to be colonizing somebody um, or religion is the cause of this, not Lanzo, not, not racism, not colonization, not um, occupation. But then also that there's there's another side of this where there was this kind of, um, I'm going to call it state building in like interfaithy state building in the in state as a term for kind of power and like student chapters and organizers that I think really existed alongside and maybe exist, continue to exist alongside some of the Zionist organizations on college campuses. I don't know if that would that sounds right to you, Dina, but it occurred to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um when you're uh, faith-based sort of organizing was definitely, um, I, I think something that NSJ, I could at least speak for SJP at UC Berkeley is something a lot of the student organizers were very annoyed with. 
um, because um, it, essentially a lot of us felt like we were being tokenized um, when being asked to represent their faith. Um, I think a lot of Palestinian Christians actually mostly feel tokenized in those kinds of settings because um, they have, you know, they have to represent a kind of religious there's also a lot of money that's involved in sort of religious faith-based um, organizing around Palestine from like Seeds of Peace to, um, there, there's just a lot. Um, and it's interesting because you can examine it as something to participate in, or you can examine it as some, as um, another realm for which the parameters of acceptable speech are very narrow. Um, and so I've been asked many on many occasions to sort of represent Muslims, but the whole paradigm, um, I think is very, uh, it, it tries to measure the wrong thing where it's pointing to, um, uh, in general, and maybe we can talk about this more later, but it's, it's very, very difficult to have conversation, frank conversations about Palestine because, um, it feels like so much is overdetermined from the outside, and so much of these, what is overdetermined, is um, at the service of Israeli colonization. So, so it's helpful for Israeli colonization to think about this as a religious um, conflict, right, as opposed to, um, you know, a systematic erasure, colonization, and um, a, I, I would say that the main Israel is using eliminatory violence um, and and anything and, and suggesting anything less, suggesting that this may be some sort of intrinsic thing about somebody's religion um, is, uh, I, I think it also confuses people from those faiths, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, it not confuses, but then like creates the sort of material artifices of that confusion where all of a sudden Christian groups are like, we need to go to Palestine to understand this religious conflict. And it's like, no, you don't actually, like you don't, you don't actually, um, like there's some books you could read. Anyway, um, we'll kind of maybe- Another form of uh, gaslighting. Yeah, right, right gaslighting. Um, okay. I'm gonna ask you another question. I'm sure we will circle back around to all of this. Um, so tell us about tell us about um, June Jordan's poetry for the people. I know it's like, it, you know, for those who don't know Dina, um, it's really hard to have a conversation with Dina about her life and influences without this coming up, and that's a great thing. So talk mm -hmm. to us about talk to us about what what poetry for the people is, what you were doing with it, and then I think you know the sort of like um, medium term question, which I think we'll get to pretty easily, is how does this come together? Together with your NSJP and Palestine Freedom Organizing mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for asking that question um, because you're absolutely right. I think it was probably one of the most formative experiences of my life. And when I think about it, June Jordan's Poetry for the People program, that is, um, when I think about it, it very much informed the way NSJP ended up being organized. Um, so June Jordan's Poetry for the People program is a, I don't know how it's organized now, but when I was involved in it, um, it was a class of 100 people um, where you would explore the historical um, uh, experiences of um, immigrant and marginalized communities in the United States through the rigorous study of their poetic traditions. 
Um, and so it would start out as a class of 100 and then it would break off into groups of 10. And then in those groups of 10, you would have these writing workshops. And everything was, uh, and the people who were organizing the class or more or less in charge of the curriculum were students themselves uh, or former students. And so it was much more horizontal. Um, and I think the biggest um, sort of contribution of um, June Jordan's Poetry for the People program in terms of like changing me or um, uh, affecting my life is just teaching me how to be a close reader um, and teaching me how, like, uh, what is a euphemism? Uh, why is a euphemism used in a particular context? Um, you know, how, what language uh, is used to obscure versus what language is used to clarify? Um, and having it be a class about poetics and poetry, um, it, it encourages you to think about everything that way from like news to um, scholarly articles to maps. Um, it's just a, a lesson in um, close reading and paying attention. And I think, again, along, with, along the lines of like um, the faith-based organizing and stuff like that, I think it was incredibly important at that time for me to, you know, be immersed in June Jordan's Poetry for the People program and also be sort of trying to understand this thing about my homeland. Um, you know, why is there such a disconnect between the sort of representational facts about Israel and Palestine in, or Palestine in the United States and then what I know to be true um, from Arabic news outlets or from family members or from the news that I'm getting uh, from close from family and connected um, uh, community there. Um, so the, the only other thing that I would say is that in the mid 90s, June Jordan sort of was very uh, forthright about saying that she thinks that the that there are two sort of moral litmus tests in the world um, in terms of like thinking about questions of power and inequality in the world. And that's the question of um, uh, the treatment of uh, LGBTQ non-binary people and the question of Palestine. Um, and I don't think that it was, you know, she, she just happened to, you know, say those kinds of things. I think she was she was deeply invested and and thinking very very critically about the access of those two um, uh, trends or ideas. Yeah, I want to go a little bit further with that, um, and uh, I take notes while we do this. That's what I'm doing so that I mark it when I listen to it again. Um, so in the Palestine and Praxis document, mm -hmm. uh, there's some great statements in there about how we can, uh, as teachers, not just in higher ed, but you know, particularly there, uh, think about these things that you're talking about. And uh, there's two axes, how June Jordan you know, connects the dots. Um, one of them is, uh, one of the commitments is highlighting Palestinian scholarship on Palestine in syllabi or writing and through invitation of Palestinian scholars and community members to speak at departmental and university events. And oh, there's so much in here. Anyway, another one is centering indigenous analyses and teaching and drawing links to intersectional oppression and mm -hmm. national liberation movements. Um, in our research, we will actively include Palestine as a space and place worthy of substantive and historical integration into critical theory 
not only as a case in a list of colonial examples. Oh, so I would uh, like you to talk about how do you in your classroom um, engage Palestine, elevate these voices, um, stop the colonizers in their tracks? Um, you know, what kind of concrete examples do you have for ways that uh, are exemplary for us to really um, be doing justice with Palestinians? Yeah, thank you for that question as well. I think um, the question of pedagogy is so important. And I think it's also very much, at least in my mind, related to my experience with the June Jordan Poetry for the People program, but also just in general as like a critical thinker. I actually think in my experience, just because there tends to be a great deal of baggage talking about Palestine, um, that I tend to be very um, uh, reserved about uh, getting too deep into it with my students. And instead I point people into what I, I view as the right direction um, because it's a completely, it's a completely different um, experience speaking to a Palestinian um, who, or, or, or just a, a scholar or an, a, a person who is physically present and materially affected and um, grappling with and dealing with the details of, um, uh, of something, um, of I, something is an abstraction uh, of the eliminatory violence of the psychological warfare of the ongoing colonization and ongoing Nekba of the ongoing sort of generational trauma. Um, and, and just having, um, just being attuned to those sorts of dimensions uh, really affects uh, what people see and really affects what you um, encourage students to look at. Um, so, you know, reading a Washington Post article that abstracts, um, for example, the um, uh, dispossession of Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah or the impending dispossession of um, Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah um, is very different than speaking to somebody whose neighbor, um, who they talk to on a regular basis, whom they know, you know, what they have for dinner every once in a while, whom they walk down the street with every once in a while, who they can go and get a, you know, cup of sugar from next door, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it, it it's a very different um, orientation and perspective is all I'm trying to say. And so I think um, in terms of the praxis letter, what I think the authors were suggesting is that um, as scholars who are interested and invested in intellectual integrity um, and in, um, Peer, the peer review process, that we shouldn't allow the abstractions that are uh, un, like meant to uh, mislead or meant to misdirect or meant to um, uh, deliberately uh, distract uh, from the facts on the ground, from um, the ongoing eliminatory violence. Um, and the other thing about the Praxis letter that I think is very important um, is that 
I think up until very recently, and this isn't just about the Palestine Praxis letter, this is like about what that letter is doing in a whole cosmology of things, right? So when that letter was released, um, you had um, families in Sheikh Jarrah who literally have um, uh, extremist settlers that have occupied half of their home and are chanting, you know, uh, death to Arabs in the streets outside of their homes. Um, just yesterday, or the day before yesterday, um, the court ruled that the families can temporarily stay in their homes, but then they have to pay um, rent to the settler organizations. Uh, so just giving you a kind of example. So that's uh, just north of the old city of Jerusalem. Just south of the old city of Jerusalem is uh, Silwan, which is another Palestinian neighborhood where they've, uh, where there are um, uh, military orders to demolish over a hundred uh, homes and businesses. And a, a friend of mine, uh, Diala Shamas, uh, did a talk with uh, the Palestine Studies uh, Center at Columbia University, uh, where she, uh, interviewed many of the families that uh, in Siluan, and these families have to um, pay for their the, the demolition of their own home, for example, and they're being charged. Um, then you also have various um, villages throughout the West Bank, um, for example, in, like around the Nablus uh, governance, um, you have the villages of Batia and um, Akraba. Uh, that are um, where uh, Israeli settler expansion is impending and these um, villages are under attack. Um, you also have uh, El Walajja, which is another village that may be, uh, that is under threat. Then also when, when Palestine and Praxis was released, you had Israel literally drop, uh, dropping air uh, from the air, uh, Boeing bombs onto uh, Palestinian homes. Um, so. So that's just to give you uh, an idea of how dynamic the map is in terms of Palestinian territory and what's going on there. Um, and that's just the, the beginning of it, right? We haven't even talked about the checkpoints. We haven't even talked about uh, the sort of apartheid um, road system, the huge wall, all of these things. Um, and so what we're trying to say, I think with the Palestine Praxis letter is, and I mean, I just saying we just because I, you know, was somewhat a part of uh, editing it um, is that, you know, calling this natural or calling this just like an ethnic dispute or calling this a religious conflict um, is not just, you know, an abstraction. It's not just mean or whatever. It's part of that eliminatory logic. You know, there's a reason why we can't say the word Palestine in classrooms and Israeli settlers are chanting death to Arabs outside of people's homes in which they're going to um, take over. There's a connection and we need to start sort of taking that connection seriously, that that, that impunity is allowed because we are using uh, language that absolves people of responsibility or having to, to look at their actual actions sort of um, like the totality of them um, and the consequences of them. Yeah. 
I yeah, know. I mean, I think I think that's really well said, and I, I feel sort of torn about ask, about like two different two different routes to take this. Um, maybe that you can think of, you probably can think of many others, but I'll just sort of throw out the two questions that I think might be good to ask now, um, and they're connected. The first is um, whether you have like whether you have any kind of um, examples or sort of interactions or sort of moments where you've like seen that can like you've found a way to kind of make that connection in a really lucid way with a student who hadn't seen it before or with uh, or like a framework to set up to kind of make that 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 possible and I can talk about ways that I try to do that or like we can maybe all have a discussion about that sort of like um we talked on the phone before this before this conversation about like sort of organizing around freedom for Palestine is is a question of pedagogy because what when you know how do you how do you enter into any kind of interaction any kind of like world making project when words don't mean what you think they mean and you can't say certain words and because it's off limits so like you know I think that like kind of thinking concretely together about like what does it look like to interrupt that and the other question that I think is related to this is sort of how have you tried in your can you tell us a little bit about your your book that you're writing. Um, on on mental health um and under surveillance and how in your practices of ethnographic representation and reflection you're trying to um kind of break the sort of narratives of erasure um and elimination yeah those are very good questions and i'm also really interested to hear how you both both having sort of Tina's been to Palestine, but having Palestinian colleagues and also being just like, it seems like critical thinkers and, and, and very invested in critical pedagogy in general, I'd be very interested to see sort of how you all are navigating this as well. But I would say it's a little difficult because uh, like my experience and the things that I'm seeing on a regular basis is uh, are very, um, uh, personal. They're very idiosyncratic. They're very, um, uh, like I said, that, um, you know, having a whole family, four generations of a family, uh, have a bomb, you know, dropped on their house and having them no longer exist and having that family being a close family, like a close family of mine or whatever, um, you know, I, in the classroom, I don't say those kinds of things, right? But um, you have to point to, you know, uh, examples. I think also literature is very helpful. Again, this is going back to poetry for the people. Um, mediated forms of expression, um, mediated forms of, uh, uh, of expression from people who've actually experienced it, I think is very, has been very helpful for me in terms of teaching, but I also feel like it's it's a way for um, to amplify and uplift Palestinian voices outside of a kind of um, paradigm that assumes that you're um, helping them. Uh, because if anything, I think that the uh, power disparity is so vast and so great that even in um, 
the process of being eliminated, Palestinian um, people are gracious enough to be teachers um, in such a profound way. And that's uh, like another aspect of all of this too, is I um, uh, was part of um, working with the Palestine Museum in Woodbridge, Connecticut, which is this sort of small, uh, sweet museum um, right near Yale, uh, thankfully for me, I guess. Um, but just encountering Palestinian art, encountering Palestinian literature and poetry, uh, being invested in it, it, being invested in assigning it, um, I think has been, it, it's not just relevant to Palestine, but it's relevant to so many questions of power at stake in the world. Um, yeah, whether it's, uh, and there are also so many ways in which teaching Palestine um, is about these larger sort of um, uh, thresholds of, uh, you know, inequality and um, uh, power disparities. Like, for example, the, and this is also another way that BDS comes in. Um, the bombs that were dropped in Gaza during the 11 day attack uh, just two months ago were, uh, for example, Boeing bombs. Um, they were manufactured by Boeing. Um, so I, I get the sense that when you're engaging with Palestinian literature and you're engaging with like what Palestinians are asking you to pay attention to, and this would be the BDS call, they would be asking you to, to really contend with um, the ways in which our economies and our lifestyles are enmeshed and imbricated in um, perpetuating these fault lines of inequality and oppression. Um, and that's not just a question about Palestine, right? But that's a, that's a global question. And it's also a question about our own self-awareness. Um, so I think that answers your question. <laughs> oh, and then about the, about the manuscript, sorry. The manuscript, all I'll say, I don't have too much to say about my manuscript because I'm still working it out and it's <laughs> really hard. Um, but I will say that um, it's really difficult to write, but it's very empowering to think about the ways in which instead of explaining something or like ad nauseum, to make writerly decisions about world making. And I've done that based on how, how I've encountered the erasure of Palestine, right? So um, you will not, you know, read a kind, you will not read a book that says Palestine, um, that's, you know, sort of peer reviewed and stuff like that, that doesn't, that, that falls outside of a particular like niche. Um, so making certain decisions, like, do I call this Israel slash Palestine? Do I call it Israel and the Palestinian territories, do I call it Israel and the Arab territories and so on and so forth. But sort of knowing all of those options and um, deliberating um, what the value is of each one of them and then making those decisions uh, yourself, I think has been an incredibly empower uh, empowering experience. I don't know whether or not that means that I'm never gonna get published or I'm never gonna get a job or anything like that, but it does mean that I've been very, um, it's been a very instructive process to think about to think about the sovereignty of writing or, or to think about the, your own power um, in terms of what you could do with your writing um, and the writerly decisions that you can make to um, yeah to 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 get people to use the same language as you um, I think is is a 
I feel like it's been kind of magical. Yeah, I think that like, and also like also the decisions about like, what, what am I, what, what language am I refusing? Um, that sometimes it's like what you don't say or like how you're not saying something that is creating a, Absolutely. That's I mean, like I think some consensus that maybe a reader didn't even know was there until. Absolutely. So like, yeah. I think maybe uh, one of the things that your question evokes for me is like, I think a lot of what I was trying to do in the manuscript was suggest that things are much more terrible than you could ever imagine for, you know, what, in terms of what Palestinians are experiencing. But I, I didn't go there and I don't want to go there. And it's a very deliberate not wanting to go there. And instead, I do want to go there with other things, but I think that the kind of, um, you know, uh, social suffering paradigm um, has been exhausted in this context. And so I feel like uh, new or uh, younger Palestinian scholars or people who are interested in uh, the Palestine question are trying to shift gears a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason I put the question, those two questions together about um, sort of pedagogical praxis plus like narratives is that I think, you know, in case this wasn't clear to listeners already, the answer to um, eliminatory violence and Palestine as a field of knowledge being put under erasure is not tokenistic representation for liberal vampires who want to like bear witness to another's suffering. Is that, is that correct? You, you like, yeah. <laughs> okay, great, great, correct. Um, and so I'm thinking about like the sort of, the sort of commitments in the praxis letter and everything around it, what the signatory, like what, what is being asked of signatories is not to, you know, show some pictures of Palestinian children who have been psychologized. It's to design curricula and pedagogies that are grounded in indigenous studies framework that maybe begin the term by asking students to reflect on like, how, how do you know that this is like, the land of the people who say it's their land. Like how, like what do you, how, what does it mean to sort of reflect on a built environment? Like what is occupation? And to mm -hmm. be able to have a kind of um, almost like scaffolding um, available to bring to bear on any number of examples or questions or experiences so that this isn't a kind of like, exception, like a sort of Palestine exceptionalism. Um, so what I was gonna say is that like, I teach this class called American Gods, which is a sort of intro to religions of the Americas. And we start, we, we have three different units and we start over it sort of chronologically each time. The first one being, okay, sort of an indigenous studies narrative of so-called mm -hmm. American religion, a black studies kind mm -hmm. of multivocal narrative, a kind of immigrant and labor narrative that circles back each time that we can layer on. Um, and what becomes clear is that the whose who's, who's nation it is, what sort of what an American religion is becomes a kind of a, a set of power plays about yeah. who, who who has the, who has the power of assertion, who has the kind of ideology that they're able to um, install and what are the breaks in that that we can see and find and try to like stretch out. Um, 
So this is this is a question about sort of Palestine and indigenous knowledges and theories as framework, um, mm -hmm. so that a student, even if especially as a teacher who has direct experience and, and stakes in and connection to um, the just you know mm -hmm. violence, um, isn't being asked to tokenize themselves, but rather that there's a mm -hmm. There's a yeah. There, there's a foundation to be able to ask those questions. Is that I mean I'm now rambling, but like does that sound right? It, absolutely. It's actually very helpful for you to hear for me to hear that coming from you because I think that that's true. It it is about um, like quite frankly power and in certain ways um, so much power and violence and this is again um, in terms of pedagogy questioning the category of violence as a standalone analytical category. Is violence just brute violence that um, Israeli police or Israeli military, uh, you know, uh, are exercising against people in Sheikh Jarrah? That is a form of violence um, and a form of sort of uh, brute power. Um, but then, you know, there are other forms of power. So, so rather than being completely intimidated by that awesome um, display of violence that is meant to intimidate you instead, or at least for me, instead think about, well, how do I, in any interview, in any setting, put Sheikh Jarrah next to Lid, next to Gaza, next to um, Batia and Akraba, next to Um al-Fahim, where two people were just killed, um, next to Ramallah, the protests that were um that the PA was sort of violent like people who were protesting the the PA they were sort of violently um manhandled um and one person uh, Nazar Banat was killed uh next to uh the hallways of Yale University to say that all of this um is eliminatory violence against Palestinians and Palestine is one place and we're all one people and that's a response that's a kind of political response to the kind of ongoing fragmentation, the kind of ongoing um, violence. Um, yeah. And so, you know, those small decisions that you make are all very consequential. And I think students uh, who are paying attention or anybody who's paying attention will pick up on those things. Yeah, to go back to June Jordan uh, and Poetry for the People, uh, she calls it a revolutionary blueprint. Mm -hmm. So you're you've laid out for us your revolutionary blueprint. Um, how, and how do you do that in terms of syllabi and sort of not just class mechanics, but um, but things that you have students engage with and how you engage students in the classroom? You said a bit, but if you could go uh, some further, yeah, that's actually a really good question. Mostly because like. I've never actually taught a class on Palestine. Um, I've been to three different university campuses. I, I did actually at Berkeley, I, I taught a class called uh, the psychological effects of military occupation, but it wasn't specific to Palestine. Um, so I don't know the answer to that question yet, but I do know that whatever it would be, it would be to, um, to, to take, to, to understand the question of Palestine is not exceptional, um, but as part of um, and an effect of larger trends um, about 
that are related to surveillance, that are related to um, disinformation campaigns, that are related to um, you know colonization and indigenous practices, embodied knowledge. Um, you know how is embodied knowledge um, uh, acquired and taught? Um, those kinds of of questions, I think, are um, not just in the context of Palestinian studies, although Palestinian studies, I feel like, is this amazing repository and resource of just uh, in terms of like grassroots mobilizing efforts, in terms of uh, clarity of language and stuff like that. Such as it's this rich, rich, rich um, archive um, and place that I feel like. Uh, people aren't paying enough attention to. Um, but that's all I would say in terms of, you know, how, and then another thing I would say, sorry, just one last thing is, aside from sort of my direct relationship with students, it's also just my direct relationship with everybody. Um, uh, you know, I find the kind of pleasantries of like small talk and like your commute to work or something to be really annoying. And so any person that I have a relationship with, it's going to be you know, one that's dynamic, could be adversarial, could be about debate. It's also about opening up a debate and a discussion and creating a culture where people are not sort of tiptoeing around issues, but addressing them head on. So it's more like a disposition, I think, as much as it is a kind of a classroom uh, uh, ethos or classroom thing. Well, if I can give just a quick example, um, yeah. Four miles from my house is a program at Georgia State University where the connection between the Israeli Defense Forces, Israeli military, and Black Lives Matter come together because the Israeli military is training um, uh, Georgia police officers in surveillance tactics. And so it's right here. It's not just over there. And you know the the shootings in Atlanta of uh, black men in particular. So I mean, it's all as you said, you know, uh, in our lives. Um, it's not just this one thing. It's got too many connectors, I think. But it's important to note. And but no one knows about that program. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have to speak it into existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that absolutely that's a that's a great point and I think that's where a lot of uh questions about and criticisms against BDS come in um when I think about BDS I think about just opening up the debate to dimensions that people don't want you to notice so for example um when I was at UC Berkeley and in the Jordan Poetry for the People program, when Gaza was being bombed, it was um, also um, when Oscar Grant was shot um, at the Fruitvale uh, uh, station in, um, in Oakland. Um, and, and what I mean about like generational trauma and all is it sometimes feels like, um, the celluloid film that just goes over and over and over again, doing the same scene over and over and over again. And all of like the ways in which the Israeli sort of security um, industry is outsourced in the United States 
um, is not, it's not just that they're sort of, um, that they're experimenting on Palestinians or, you know, refining these tactics on Palestinian in quotes mobs and stuff like that. It's that it's, um, it's an industry like, so you're right, the Israeli, um, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the connection is, but there is some sort of connection between the Israeli police force and police forces in the United States in terms of training. Um, then there are also all of these uh, private security firms like uh, Black Cube, for example, or uh, Site Group, um, which are um, uh, private security firms that ex-Mossad agents or ex-Shin uh, agents or something like that come to the United States and think it's a good idea to, um, you know, provide these kinds of services and stuff like that. Um, you not only see this as um, manifesting in terms of um, gaslighting and intimidating and creating um, sort of campaigns that target and silence um, Palestinian and Arab um, and probably Muslim scholars, but also everybody. You know, uh, Harvey Weinstein, for example, um, solicited the or, or hired Black Cube uh, for, you know, his whole um, you know, uh, cover-up campaign. Um, so the, so these kinds of things have implications far beyond uh, just Palestinians. And so when you were, I, f I get the sense that sometimes the paradigm of solidarity is a little, little tired um, because I, I think reframing things along the lines of um, mutual aid, uh, reciprocity, protection and safety of one another is probably um, more accurate. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I sort of feel like, I don't know, tell me if the, this is wrong, but I'm trying to sort of bring some of this together and then we'll ask our, our last question. But like, there are probably like any number of examples that, that one could marshal of collaboration between sort of U.S. police and Israeli occupation forces. So we could we could come. You know, there's there's there 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 are a lot of examples that people people have marshaled that we can marshal, um, and in some ways, what one of the one of the one of the pedagogical concerns is that for a lot of reasons that have to do with ideology, like the, no matter how many examples one brings up, mm. they, they, be, they have been made like unseeable um, yeah. or un, unsayable. And so um, what, I, what I sort of hear your answer being to the kind of some of the like, you know, how do you organize the syllabus question is like, not about examples, but about, but about what, you know, what lenses, what lenses. Mm -hmm. um, what lens correction um, mm -hmm. does a student need when they are looking at the front page of the New York Times and seeing an FAQ about, you know, is BDS anti-Semitic? Like, you know, how do you how do, how does someone learn to read? And I think that goes back to the kind of conversation we were having much earlier about, like, okay, what is what does the work of liberation entail? How do, how does one learn that by reading rigorously and reckoning with rigorously mm -hmm. um, the poetic traditions of, mm. of marginalized people and um, people pe and writing traditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I also get the sense that, I mean, 
it's really difficult to not be cynical, um, especially considering the kind of heightened, um, amplified, uh, uh, intense violence that we're seeing right now. Um, but I think the one thing that really gives me a great deal of encouragement is that there's no reversing that, you know, like whatever students you have, um, they're going to go off and they're going to be in their respective fields. And I just, it, it brings me um, uh, some peace to know that more aware or more literate people will be in positions of power not too far from now. So, uh, and they're gonna be the ones that are questioning like, oh, why is Boeing, why is the um, you know CFO of Boeing or something getting a bonus on this day? Or why do we, um, why does the United States think that it's not symbolically charged to uh, within an appropriations bill gift Israel 3.8, billion dollars while um, bombs are falling on Gaza. Why does this, you know, uh, commentator in on the sort of on primetime television um, ask this person uh, who is talking about, um, you know, some random thing related to Palestine, whether or not they like uh, support Hamas, um, that once you start seeing um, the extent of all of these controlling processes, there's no unseeing them. And it, again, like I said before, it, um, Palestine is a kind of microcosm and it's a very good example, but it is absolutely not exceptional. Um, uh, and so that's one thing that I think is sort of special about teaching um, and focusing on Palestine. Yeah, that... Um... I think that's a really important as we sort of think with you and try to think with many of our, our sort of guests and listeners about sort of what it would what would it mean to be a teacher who who affirms and lives out the commitments in the praxis letter as just as one as one of many examples of movement building and world making and um, sort of campaigns that are that are ongoing. I think that keeping that in mind that not an exception, not an exception. And as soon as as soon as a teacher, no matter how sort of um, aligned in their own heads that they, mm -hmm. they think they are with the sort of Palestinian freedom struggle start like doing mm -hmm. the sort of fetishized suffering narratives or exceptional examples like that is that is actually not that is, that is going against the grain of the mm -hmm. kind of statement and praxis that um, mm -hmm. that that I think you and many others have kind of invited us into. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so uh, we're almost to our last, I think we, we've, you know, we've been like talking for almost an hour now. Um, anything before we ask our last question, I'm gonna let Tina ask the last question, our standard question. Um, anything else we haven't asked that you want to say or that we haven't, that we haven't covered? Um, or that you wish we would ask. Not, not particularly. Or that you want to ask us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that there's anything in particular other than maybe there's one question that I would like to ask you guys, and this is going to be a kind of roundabout way of saying it. But um, one thing that I'm sort of concerned with recently is sort of institution building and um, making space. Um, 
just because I get the sense that all of the spaces that we create and cultivate to hold um, uh, vigils or to mobilize uh, seems to be examined and then somehow under attack and things like that. And I just want to know maybe for each of you uh, what what spaces you find to be um, the most um, uh, educational or nurturing um, when it comes to, uh, I guess, praxis. Um, yeah. Is it the classroom or is it somewhere else? Tina, you go first. Because <laughs> I'm well, still thinking. That's, a, that's an amazing question. Um, I think it is, it's in the classroom, but taking students out of the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, I'm part of a living wage campaign that Lucia was also part of. And so uh, building coalitions um, with local human rights groups, but especially with our um, hourly staff who are paid poverty wages and hearing those stories. Um, the same, you know, as you're talking about teaching about Palestine and I read the uh, Palestine Praxis Statement, you know, I think, oh, how do I not do fall into the, the liberal vampirism trap? <laughs> and the way to do that is to be places mm -hmm. and put myself out there where I can get called on it um, <laughs> and corrected and um and and hear those stories uh and being in atlanta i you know there's there's a lot to mm -hmm. hear here um so yeah i think it's it's getting uh, putting oneself out there taking risk i mean what kind of risk really i mean i've got so much privilege here right but um and and making connections and and doing the work i gotta mm -hmm. do the work mm -hmm. helpful to hear yeah, I think um, part of me is sort of stumbling on this question, I think, because I feel like I just, you know, I think about a lot, I think we've been, th been through a year where there hasn't been a lot of in-person connections and I just moved to a new place. So I feel like I, you're asking me that question in a moment where I'm sort of searching for um, what I imagine to be, or what I feel to be most helpful to me as a, as a really embodied space. Um, I think what the thing that I that comes to mind, and now I'm just going to talk out loud for a minute, is that my um, friend um, Amoria sometimes said, like, I think we were talking about something. Somebody had like done something, kind of like fucked up. Excuse my language. Um, we'll put this on the explicit <laughs> podcast. Um, uh, and there were a white person, and she said, you know, like more white people need to fail because that means sort of take, taking a risk. Like there, I think there's a lot of caution or more, more like being, being willing to, or like being, being in this sort of risky, messy space. I think maybe more white people, more people um, doing, take, taking, taking risks about their own, maybe job security, maybe their own um, sort of relationships or sort of like the peaceful, like kind of veneer that gets kind of glossed over um, a sort of comfortable privatized mm -hmm. life and being willing to fail 
that, but also being willing to sort of be open to what happens when, um, when, when that breaks, whether that means um, as a professor, not um, capitulating to the um, propaganda that tells me not to talk about Palestine in my classes because I might not get tenure or, um, and to think about like, wow, that's like such a low cost for me. And to, I think to constantly sort of be checking my own um, forms of retreat um, and to be in spaces that do that for me. And I didn't think like the most, the most concrete example that I actually, I've been writing a lot about this. I haven't been like in it for a while, but I think about some of the like kind of lefty organizations, the union coalition in New Haven as a kind of leftist coalition that was constantly messing up within itself where there were power struggles within it, within the communities, but how do we be a democratic organization? How do we model the world we wish to see? How do we like enact a kind of liberating pedagogy among ourselves in our organizing relationships in our classrooms that doesn't reproduce the very power, i.e. Yale's kind of billionaire corporation that we are trying to contest. And I think that the, the kind of interplay between sort of what does it mean to transform the institution that we're all part of while also reforming constantly within these relationships that we and these, these ideals that we're constantly falling short of, like, I think, you know, broken movement organizations are kind of the place to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you are with a group of people or like, for me, it's been when I've been with a group of people who are kind of constantly aware of our own, like, perpetual falling short, or sort of perpetual embeddedness within um, structures that are going to you know, cause us to be Mm -hmm. doing all kinds of violence to one another. Anyway, so when I I thought about the like sort of failing, failing, being willing to fail more often, I think that's another way of saying that like um, being in organizations that are really broken and trying to figure out like how do we become aware of that and then try to correct it and then fail again. And then Mm -hmm. like, um, and for me, like union organizing has been one of those things, but then I think, you know, there are any number of places, there are churches, there are, you know, um, community gardens, there are classrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that, I know that was a random totally answer. Here. That's amazing to hear. Yeah. It really makes me think about, um, both of your sort of comments makes me think about, I think sometimes there's this, um, because it really is a spectacular story, the story of Palestinian mobilization worldwide. Um, but there can, there tends to be a kind of, fetishization of like, oh my God, look at how great they're organizing. But I agree with you that <laughs> that um, it's messy, you know, and it's uh, uh, both internal dynamics and then pressure from the outside um, makes the, like those kinds of organizing spaces really, 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 really hard. Um, but doesn't, but that's also probably some of the most intellectually um, uh, rigorous and um, in instructive work that I've ever done, um, both sort of grappling with um, internal criticisms and internal dynamics and structure questions that are incredibly relevant and important and uh, pertinent, um, as well as, you know, internal criticisms from that come from bad faith, um, or sort of direct infiltration from the FBI or uh, 
you know, smear campaigns from the outside or whatever. Um, so I think holding your ground and trying to hold on to reality while also being um, open to growth and failure and change uh, has been the only way I think I've gotten this far. And I, yeah, I, I, I sense that that's sort of what both of you were also saying. So I appreciate your answers. Okay, uh, the time is, is nigh. <laughs> we could talk for a very long time. I have, uh, and it's, this is wonderful. But we, we often end our episodes by inviting our guests to share what you are watching, ingesting, listening to, consuming that you um, are inspired by that you'd like to tell others about. Yeah, I will just say I had this book recommended to me from somebody else who was also part of the Palestine and Praxis uh, letter, uh, drafting it. It's called Wondrous Journeys in a Strange Land by Sonia Nimmer. Um, and it's a, it's a novel based on Palestinian folklore. Uh, Sonia Nimmer was a professor of mine in 2000 and six when I went to study at Birzeit. Um, and it's, when, when I think about sort of the way uh, the question of Palestine is unfolding in the public sphere at this moment, um, I would hope that it's not a Greek tragedy, but instead a Palestinian folkloric tale. Um, and that has so many sort of implications in it and stuff like that. And that's kind of what I would recommend people to read. It's, a, it's and the reason why I would also recommend it is because a very Palestinian story um, very uh, tied to sort of the biblical history of Palestine, um, but it's also just a light, sweet, um, easy read. Um, so it's been keeping me uh, afloat uh, over the last few weeks. Thank you for that. Okay, yeah. Lucia, you're next. This has very, I'm sure that we could figure out together with our smart minds what connection mm -hmm. this has to do with, um, mm -hmm with what we've been talking about. But since I mentioned it before, um, when we had our, our first, um, it's not an interruption, it's a you know invitation to delight with um, the, the baby appearance. So I found, I'm at my parents' house right now um, and in Tennessee, and I found a, um, I found the like baby book that my mom's parents had for her. So it has like her, you know, her handprint when she was born and like all the information you have about babies. But it also is full of like 1950s advice for white heteronuclear uh, middle class families in Louisiana about how to how to take care of their babies. Um, so my mom and I have been reading it, and the advice is wild. They want you to potty train your child when it's always he when when baby when baby is eight months old. It's time to tie him to a toilet, like strap him to a toilet so that he can like learn to have bowel movements on the toilet, even if he's still wearing diapers. Like you should, you should do this. They want you to feed your baby orange juice every day, like from birth. Um, and my favorite, my favorite suggestion is when, when baby is 10 pounds, it is time for him to begin sunbathing. So you strip your baby down and put him um, outside in the sun for like, for no more than 30 minutes. 
And, <laughs> um, and that's a way, and so he will have a good tan within a few, within a few months. Um, if you put your, if you let your baby sunbathe anyway. So, um, that's been a true delight to read a couple of pages of advice about this with my mother, um, who shout out to you, mom, who listens faithfully to every podcast. Um, you know, really, really, really has been asking me and my, my sibling for grandchildren. And, um, now I know what I'll, what I'll, you know, if, if that day comes, um, now I know what to do, which is feed my baby orange juice and give them skin cancer. The end. Tina, it's your turn. Okay. Yes. Shout out to radical mom of Lucia. I mean, <laughs> an amazing preacher and teacher and chaplain. Okay. Um, all right. This is going to sound so serious, but okay. I blame Powell's books for their email a few weeks ago. And it was actually before we knew about this podcast, and then it was sitting there, and I had to read it. Uh, Najwan Darish, new book of poetry. I literally, I just actually was invited for the third time in my life. I gave a sermon at my sermon ever. I went to divinity school, but was invited to come back and talk to my liberal Protestant church and oh. used a poem um, by Najwan Darwish. So I was gonna, I was gonna um, recommend that too. So I'm so glad you did. Okay. Well, I was drawn in by the title, Exhausted on the Cross. Um, and um, he says, we drag histories behind us. Ooh, and if you're from the Southern United States, that just, just hits home too. Here where there's neither land nor sky. Oh, I just really simple. I like the really pared down poems that just pack a punch. And I just like sitting with him and his poetry. I was going to say, before we leave, um, Samih al-Qasim, if you're into minimalist poetry from that area also. But I thank you for reading that. It's beautiful. Okay. Well, we're at time. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our interview with Dina Omar of Yale University on teaching Palestine in higher education. My co-producer and co-host, Lucia Holsether, and I would like to acknowledge our audio editor and engineer, Aliyah Harris, and our summer intern and director of communications and design, Percy Thompson. Our intro music and theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is by Acrasis, and it's called Hemlock Head, off the Unemployed Apologist album. Max Bowen raps and Mark McKee beats, available on bandcamp.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can sponsor us at our new Patreon account, Patreon at patreon.org slash radpedagogy. Thank you for your support.
head full of blood and poison room in my bed for another person not sure why or who but i like trying to pry into the possibility that i might be cool enough not to lie to you fly into a sighing room whenever i know that there's no reason to Shifts and symptoms masking a lack of wisdom When I'm alone I put on a disguise to hide behind and obscure the fact That absence marks everything the world's full of selves But I'm so full of myself and therefore empty of significance Cause nothing signifies anything except for what I signify to you And the symbolic language of my mind isn't relatable or true Not sure, not sure, not sure.